we have the tendency to want to approach the Bible and all we see and what we filter every passage through is the cross. All we see is church-age salvation, salvation by grace alone, through, through faith alone. But when we approach the Bible, we, we can't approach it from our vantage point. We've got to approach it from God's vantage point. And what God is actually doing all through the Bible is he's showing you where he's going as he makes moves to establish his kingdom. Something we have to remember is that Christianity, listen, it's, it, or this church age, it's a 2,000-year period of time in the midst of a 7,000-year plan that God is unfolding before us in his word. It's a 2,000-year it's a parenthesis. And, and the reason that we call it a 2,000-year parenthesis is because of what we saw last week when we were talking about the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of God. It's a 2,000-year parenthesis because in Acts chapter 7, Jesus was standing, not seated, at the right hand of God because he was ready to return if the nation of Israel would repent, but they didn't repent, and they stoned Stephen after already crucifying Jesus and after cutting John the Baptist's head off. So, so the stoning of Stephen, as we saw, that thing was strike three, that ushered in the church age that we're currently living in, and there is a major shift in the Bible after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. It's huge. Acts 8.1, we immediately see Saul show up, who of course later gets renamed Paul. He shows up in verse 1, and of course he would become the apostle to the Gentiles, we immediately see Philip preaching the kingdom of God now, like we saw last week, instead of the kingdom of heaven. And we immediately see Philip start preaching to the Samaritans, which Jesus had previously told him, don't go to them. So, and I showed you that so that we could be sure to, see, to catch the big picture of this, whole, of this whole thing. And the big picture, it all comes back to the day of the Lord. Okay, so, so what is it exactly? Now, now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, I want to mention, it references the day of Christ. It references the day of Christ. Do you have that slide? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. You may not have it, and that's okay. It references, I want to point out to you, that it references the day of Christ, Okay, it, it, just to make sure that doesn't confuse us as we're studying our Bibles, we need to understand that that phrase, the day of Christ, that's a reference to the rapture. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is referring to the period of time after that. So, so though the phrase, the, the day of the Lord, is most certainly a reference to the second coming in the Bible, and that's how we typically describe the day of the Lord as the, as the second coming, it is a day that encompasses more than just a day. The day of the Lord begins following the rapture of the church, which is the event that ultimately ushers in the tribulation period. And, and that's when the day of the Lord technically begins. So, so it begins in the tribulation. It extends through the millennium and all the way into the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So we could say specifically the day of the Lord is when Jesus Christ comes back in power and glory, touches down on earth, putting his enemies under his feet, the day of the second coming. 
but technically it's a much broader period of time that encompasses over a thousand years. And, and, and here's some of the ways that the day of the Lord is described in the Bible so that we can get a grasp on this thing. And, and I want you to notice as we're reading it how drastically different this sounds than the first coming sounds. Ze- Zephaniah chapter, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 20, or chapter 46 in verse 10. It, it says, for this is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance that he may avenge him of his adversaries and the sword shall devour and it shall be satiate and it made drunk with their blood for the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. The first time Jesus came, he was the sacrifice. The next time he comes, he's the one swinging the sword. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14 says, the great day of the Lord is, is, is near, it is near, and it hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Malachi 4, 5 calls it the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You see, the first time he came, he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. The second time he comes, he's going to be taking lives. And and man, I I know, I understand this is the side of God that it's a hard hard one to stomach sometimes. It's a lot easier to sit up here and preach about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross and the way that he loves us. It's much easier to preach about that than the day that he comes back and taking vengeance upon his enemies. But what we have to understand is, as we, as we process the, the Lord's vengeance, is that God is so supremely holy that he cannot coexist with sin. And that sin, therefore, demands a price And Jesus so graciously paid that price for us on our behalf. He gave everyone that has ever lived a measure of light. And each person has to choose what they're going to do with that light that they've received. And we're living in this age of grace where, where, like we saw last week, the fact that God hasn't returned yet is because of his long suffering and his desire that all would come to repentance But listen, there's a clock ticking on that thing. The clock is ticking. And if you have ears to hear what I'm telling you this morning, it's it's almost like you can hear the ticking of the clock and the ticking's just getting faster and faster as we get closer and closer. It's just that you don't know exactly when the alarm is going to go off. We don't know the day or the hour, but we can know the times and the seasons. It's like, it's like one of those board games or those trivia games where you push the timer and it starts off beep, beep, beep. And then as it gets closer, beep, 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 right? It's, do, it's doing all that and you're like, <laughs> you know, get it past it to the other guy. You know, it, you're, you're doing one of those type of deals. You can't tell exactly when it's going to go off, but you know it's getting close. 
And that's where we're at in terms of this age of grace ending, where the human race begins to play by a different set of rules. That game is over. It it had a time limit. And so when Jesus comes back the second time, things are different. Because now we're talking about a group of people who have refused to accept God's grace and his sacrifice as payment for sin, and now will ultimately be left to potentially pay for their sins themselves. Yet God is patient, he is is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But judgment will ultimately come on those that choose to reject him. So that's what the day of the Lord is. That's, That's what it is. And the next thing I want us to see is number three, the the importance of the day of the Lord. The importance of the day of the Lord. Now, I know I've already said that we understand the times and the seasons when we understand the day of the Lord. So, So the day of the Lord is certainly important from that standpoint, but I want us to come at it from another angle. I I want us to come at it from letter A. I want us to come at it from the Bible's perspective. I want us to come at it from the Bible's perspective. The day of the Lord is is important from the Bible's perspective. And I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm I'm going to pull back a a little bit some of the stuff from the archives that that we've already learned throughout this study. And And I think if you've been here, I think you'll remember some of it. But if you haven't, now's a good time for me to get you caught up on a, on a few things. So, so let's think about this for a quick second. We've seen from the first two verses of chapter 5 that the Thessalonians knew the day of the Lord perfectly. And as we've previously seen in past weeks, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they spent what was only a few weeks with the Thessalonians, didn't they? When they, when they led them to the Lord, that was the... That was the equivalent of probably what was three weeks. And at this point in chapter 5, keep in mind, the Thessalonians, they have not been saved long. We're talking about probably a few months. So with that being the case, how could it possibly be that they already understand the day of the Lord perfectly? How could you understand that perfectly already? How is that possible? And to understand that, I want to remind us of some of what we saw in previous weeks from Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, it gives us the history of Paul reaching the Thessalonians with the gospel, a lot of other details as to the inspiration behind the writing of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in Acts 17, 1, where do we see was the first place that Paul went when he went to Thessalonica? Well, verse 1, it says that Paul passed through and he, he went to the synagogue of the Jews. He, he, he went and it said, verse 2, as his manner was, he went in unto them three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. The first place Paul went when he got to to Thessalonica was to the synagogue. It was the Jewish synagogue. And it says he went into the Jewish synagogue and he opened up their scriptures and Paul basically said to him, you know Christ is the fulfillment of everything you're reading, right? And, 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 you know, for a lot of them, that was that light bulb moment. And they called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
to save them, and there were many that were saved. But, but being that the Thessalonians that Paul reached were at a Jewish synagogue, he was dealing with a group of people that would have known the Old Testament scriptures. And knowing that, they would have understood the phrase, the day of the Lord, because that's one of the key phrases in the Old Testament. And, and, and we were just looking at, at some of these Old Testament passages about the day of the Lord. But, but understand, the day of the Lord was something that every Old Testament prophet talked about. The phrase is used by them, and even when that phrase isn't being used by them, they're oftentimes describing it, they're describing that day all the time. And that's exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 3. In Acts 3, Peter's preaching a message, and he's calling out the Jews for killing their Savior. And in verse 15, Peter says, you guys realize you crucified the Prince of Life, right? Like, you realize that's what you did. He calls them to repent, and starting in verse 19, he says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. The word restitution means to restore there's coming a day when god is going to restore everything back to the way that it was the times of of restitution is is when god restores everything to the way that it was which which is a reference of course to the day of the lord that's when that's going to happen but check out this next part whom the heaven there's coming uh, there, when the heavens must receive whom the heavens must receive into the times of restitutions of all things and here it is which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began listen this is what God has been talking about and pointing to all along it, do you remember what Enoch was preaching while he was here the book of Jude tells us in, in Jude verse 14, it, it, it says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. Listen, so that tells us how close to the beginning of creation this thing actually was. The Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying, behold, the Lord cometh to take away the sins of the world. Is that what it says? Oh, he, oh, he's not talking about his first coming, is he? Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That's what Jude the seventh from Adam was talking about. When the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, y'all, that's referencing the second coming. It's a reference to the day of the Lord. So the seventh from Adam was preaching about the day of the Lord. He's preaching about and prophesying about the second coming Thousands of years before Jesus came the first time. You see, God's showing us where he's going all throughout the Bible. That's why, like we saw, Peter is saying, God's been talking about this through all the holy prophets since the world began. It's the theme of the Bible. The day of the Lord when Jesus comes back and he cleans house and and he restores all things back to the way that they were. And when he finally gets the glory that's due his name. You, you, you realize 
that, that all these holy prophets that have been prophesying about the day of the Lord and the second coming, do you, do you realize these guys like Isaiah and Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Amos, all these guys, they lived in different places, were oftentimes separated by hundreds of years. They didn't communicate directly, but they used the same phrase and the same details to talk about the same event. Do you realize how supernatural and unbelievable that is? Listen, we can't get people to agree about what happened yesterday. Much less get them to say the same thing hundreds of years apart. And think about this. Would you say that the perspective that society has on big issues, and smaller ones for that matter, has changed or evolved at all over the last hundred years? For better or worse, this country looks nothing like it did a hundred years ago. And I'm not sure it looks anything like it did ten years ago. Yet these guys separated by time, separated by distance, separated by cultural shifts are all saying the same thing about the same event. And the reason that's the case is because there's really only one person talking the whole time. Second Peter 1.21, it, it says that the Second Peter 1.21 says that, that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It all sounds the same because there's only one author. In the Old Testament, the, the, the second coming, this thing was such a well-known topic that it's oftentimes simply referred to as that day. No other description needed, you know, that day. The, the, that day was so well-known, everybody knew what you were talking about. Zechariah uses that phrase 24 times himself. And every time you see the phrase that day, God is setting the context for us. And man, it'll really help us understand what God's talking about and what he's pointing to in the Old Testament when you, when you understand that. Because what you find is, is that sometimes when the Bible says that day, he's referring directly to the second coming. But other times the Bible uses the phrase that day, and it's not a direct reference to the second coming. It's a picture of the second coming. Study that out. A lot of us, a lot of stories we grew up learning as, as kids in Sunday school, those things were interesting stories, but they were pointing to something else, and it was right under our nose, and we didn't even realize it. They were painting pictures, many of them, of the day of the Lord. I wish we had time to look at some of them, but, but search for that phrase in your Bible in the, in the Old Testament, and, and, and do, do the research for yourself, and you'll see what's going on, and see what's going on in the story. Every time that phrase is used, it's painting a picture of the second coming. So, so why did the Thessalonians understand the day of the Lord perfectly, even though they'd only been saved what was likely only a few months? Because they understood the Old Testament, and they understood what all the Old Testament prophets were pointing to, which is the day of the Lord. And in understanding that, they already understood the theme of the Bible, the day of the Lord, that thing made perfect sense to them because of that. And that's why earlier, earlier I said, most people don't understand the day of the Lord because they don't study and understand the Old Testament. 
And, and what we have to understand is, is this. The entrance to the New Testament is through the Old Testament. That's the entering in point. That pulls it all together. So in a day and age when popular voices in Christianity are, are suggesting that we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that we do the exact opposite of that. We don't disconnect or unhitch ourselves from it. It's the place we enter in that connects it all together. So that's the importance of the day of the Lord from the, from the Bible's perspective. But I also want to see the importance of the day of the Lord from God's perspective. Let her be on your study sheet from God's perspective. You know, you know why the day of the Lord is, is so key to the Bible and why it's constantly coming up? Because God wants us to get as excited about that day as he is. Because when we do, the Bible teaches us it's going to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. We all have different dates on the calendar that we're looking forward to or that we get excited about, right? For you know, some of you young people, we used to have paper calendars. You know, and on those paper calendars... We used to mark up and highlight and star and do all this stuff on special days, right? Birthdays, kids' birthdays, people coming in town to stay with you, anniversary, you know, what, whatever it is. Of course, you know, some of you highlight your anniversary. For me, I never see a more surprised look on my wife's face when I say happy anniversary. <laughs> but the... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, she's back this week, and so I thought I'd have a little bit of fun. But that date does seem to elude us every once in a while in the, in the grand scheme of, of, of the chaos. Hashtag Wedstrong. <laughs> now, see, nowadays, we, nowadays we've got calendars on our phones, right? That, that's that's kind of how we do it, and, you know, it, it has kind of ruined some of the fun of getting the calendars all marked up on those special days. But the day of the Lord, that's the day that's marked and starred and highlighted on God's calendar. And one of the ways that we know that is because over 800 times in the Bible, there's some sort of reference to this day. Only 800, though. If God starred, marked, or highlighted that day anymore, his heavenly highlighter would run out of ink. Like it's the way in this day, it's so important from God's perspective because this is the day where He restores everything and finally gets the glory that He deserves. Listen, all around this world today, God's name is being blasphemed, God's name is being disrespected. But that won't be the case any longer moving forward from the day of the Lord. Jesus will return, He will touch down on this planet to ultimately sit in his rightful place on the throne and receive the glory that's due his name. Do you long for that day this morning? Is that day highlighted on your calendar? Is that day even on your radar? God couldn't make its importance any more clear if he wrote it on the wall because he already wrote it in his book over 800 times. So this, this is a day that's extremely important from the Bible's perspective and from God's perspective. And now 
I want us to get into the weeds a little bit more in this passage. Verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it, it begins to give us a few more specific details about the day of the Lord, and I want us to take a look at one of those. Number four, the details we need to know about the day of the Lord. The details we need to know about the day of the Lord. We're, we're only going to get to the first detail that's laid out in this passage, and we'll look at the others in the coming weeks. But look back at 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 with me, if you would, because I want you to have this detail fresh in your mind. It says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And, and, and that's the first detail I want us to see. Letter A, it comes as a, as a thief in the night. But have you ever just sat back and thought about what that means exactly? Have you ever just thought about some of the details that he lays out there and what that means? Because it can throw you off for just a second if you're really paying attention to what you're reading because there is a little contrast that's going on. The, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Okay, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Okay, hold on, give me, give me a second to process that, right? It, now, obviously, when we, when we think about day, we think about light. And when we think about night, we think about darkness. Paul, Paul even references that idea a few verses later in verse 5 when he says, Ye are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So we can see that in this passage, God's wanting to teach us something about the day of the Lord that has to do with light in darkness. Now, hang with me here as we're getting into this, y'all, because if you start daydreaming on me right now, you're going to be lost for the rest of the message. You might as well just take one of those blankets sitting there and just lay on down and nestle up and check out. And I really hope that you don't do that. Now, now let me bring to your attention is something Jesus says in John chapter 9 and verse 5. He, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so Jesus is on the earth for 33 and a half years or so. So in that period of time, he was the light of the world. But then Jesus ascends back up into heaven after the resurrection. So what happened after the light of the world left? It would have been dark, wouldn't have it? It would have been nighttime, right? You tracking with that? So, so as long as Jesus was in the world, he was the light of the world. Forty days after the resurrection, he ascends back up into heaven, and so the light's gone. So it's dark. It's it's nighttime. Now look at Philippians chapter two, starting in verse fourteen. It, it says, "Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world." Do you see that? So, okay, so let's get this. As long as Jesus was in the world, he was the light of the world. Now Jesus ascends, and Jesus is gone, and we became reflectors of His light. Do you see that at the end of verse 15? It doesn't say that we are lights. He said we shine as lights 
in the world. We're like lights. And the reason is because we don't have any light of our own. He is the light, and when, when he left, it became dark. But he's left us here to be reflectors of his light in the midst of the darkness. And if we weren't tracking with that, God gives us an illustration of this exact thing every single day in creation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 gives us a, a very interesting little nugget that you can run with to quite a few different places. But it says, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So God's saying, you can look around at everything that God has made, and it's going to reveal to you some things about God. It, in other words, God uses the physical things in creation to teach us about spiritual things. Now, one of the things, of course, that he teaches us in creation clearly is the fact that he exists, right? It, you can't approach the universe with an ounce of objectivity and look at the complexity of it and look at all that came together to sustain life on this planet and come to any other conclusion other than intelligent design. There had to be a creator. But creation shows us more details than just the fact that there is simply a creator. For example, let me ask you, how is it that God has revealed what we've just looked at? looked at about God being the light and we're reflecting his light how has God revealed that to us in creation as long as he was a, as long as Jesus was in the world he's the light of the world and God says the light of the world is going to leave and it's going to get dark but I'm going to put something that doesn't have any light of its own to reflect that light and shine into the darkness and I don't want to insult your intelligence, but still, if that's still not striking brain just yet, the sun lights the world in the daytime. And when the sun goes down or the sun leaves, it gets dark and the moon comes up and it reflects the sun's light in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the nighttime. Now, the oldest book of the Bible actually told us that the moon doesn't have any light of its own. Long before scientists figured that out in Job 25.5, says, Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Job 25, 5. There it is. There it was. Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. So God's revealing to us through his creation. He's revealing things. Now, now check out how Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14 describes this same idea. Genesis 1, 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And of course, everything that he says there is true in physical creation. But, but God's saying that it's there as a sign to us. He's going to teach us some things with those lights. For example, in Matthew 24, 29, have you ever seen what it says is going to happen after the tribulation as the day of the Lord is ushered in? It says immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And listen, y'all, that is going to literally happen, physically happen on this earth. 
But it's picturing something else for us. Because at the rapture, what's going to happen? Well, the moon is picturing the church, and at the rapture, we're taken out of here, so the moon is no longer going to give its light anymore. And the sun, which is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ, left a while back to ascend back up to the Father. And so that's why Amos says in Amos chapter 5 and verse 18, that the, Amos 5, 18, don't have it? Amos 5, 18 that the day of the Lord is darkness, is what it says. It's darkness and not light, because that's how it's going to begin. It's going to begin in darkness, because it begins in the tribulation period. Jesus left and isn't back, and the church is gone. It's darkness. And you know what? God was even painting this picture clear back in Genesis 1, he tells us what makes a day. He tells us what makes a day. In the evening and the morning were the first day. In the evening and the morning were the second day. And God repeats that over and over in that order. And what we find is that in the Jewish mind, the day begins with night. It begins with darkness. Now, we, we should understand that relatively easy because our day actually begins with darkness as well, even though we don't think about it that way. Our day begins at midnight. It, it's dark, isn't it? So listen, creation is it's painting pictures about spiritual things. It's teaching us about the day of the Lord. And, and as we're looking at these pictures, I, I don't know how we can't go to the last chapter of the Old Testament. In, in the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, God, God sets the context for us as to as to what this chapter is about in verse 1 and verse 5. And, and you may not have Malachi 4, 5, because I'm sensing a trend. Yes, okay, so in Malachi, in Malachi 5, I, can now, I now know which ones made the cut and which ones didn't. Um, the Malachi 4, 5, it says, it says specifically that this passage is talking about the day of the Lord. And then look with me beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. He's describing the day of the Lord. Verse 2, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise. The Son, capital S-U-N, of righteousness. And no, that's not a spelling error. We've discovered another error in the Bible. No, that's not a spelling error in the Bible. It's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of righteousness, the light of the world. And yes, the day of the Lord will begin with darkness, but the sun is going to rise. And the sun is going to burn up those that do wickedly. And as the sun rises every morning, you know, God's painting a picture for us. He's painting a picture of the day of the Lord. And just as sure as the sun rises every morning, the sun of righteousness will rise and Jesus will return. So the day begins with darkness, but then the sun rises. And, and Genesis lays out in, in it pictures for us what happens when the sun rises. 
Okay, we, we already talked about how in Genesis 1 that the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, and God continues on with that pattern. But what I, what I didn't mention that should stand out to us is that after six days of creation and continuing with that pattern for all six days in the evening and the morning were the sixth day, God breaks his pattern on the seventh day. So beginning in Genesis 1, 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And here it is. In the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Right? So that pattern has continued from day one to day six. Continue on starting in chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, why did God break his pattern? There's something noticeably absent there, isn't it? Why didn't he say, in the evening and the morning were the seventh day, like he did with all uh, the other days? And the reason is because once the sun comes up on the seventh day, the sun isn't going to go back down again. It will forever be up. And like some of you know, the seventh day, that it's a picture of the millennium. Remember the biblical math formula, 2 Peter 3.8. says a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And in the seven days of creation, God lays out for us the entire course of human history. Because there will be 6,000 years of human history and then the beginning of the seventh day, God's going to take a rest. He's going to take a thousand-year rest called the millennium. In, in Genesis 2-3, that's still on the screen, it says, He blessed the seventh day, and He, he sanctified it. He, he set it apart. That one was special. And after God makes that statement in verse 3 about that day being set apart, 867 times God refers to this seventh day again. And God lets you know there's something special about this seventh day. On, on this seventh day, it's the day of the Lord and it will be a day of rest. The sun is going to rise and it's never going to come down and it's coming as a thief in the night. So... In, in, the, in the seven days of creation in Genesis, God, God lays out the fact that the day will begin in darkness and then it will become light. He lays out that there will be 6,000 years of human history and on the seventh day he's going to rest. So God takes the things he made and he preaches a message to us with them. And he's saying it in, in high definition color as we, as we see it outside through creation and he's saying it in black and white through his word. And he's saying it to us everywhere we turn. And he's coming as a thief in the night. Now, has it ever seemed strange to you that God refers to himself as a thief? Doesn't that seem, does that, that, you know, that, that doesn't really sound like a term that's becoming of God, does it? Like, I, you know, had he not put it in his word, I surely wouldn't be caught calling him that, right? And so, so, so what's up with that? 
But, but do you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 14 and verse 48? Ju Judas betrays Jesus to be crucified, and the chief priests and scribes and elders, they show up to take him to, to have him crucified. And in verse 48, Jesus says, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves to take me? Okay, what's that about? Jesus is saying, you're coming at me like a thief now? Is that what this is? And then we know, like Matthew 27, 38 says, we're all well, well aware that Jesus was crucified in between two thieves, wasn't he? There were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And so it's almost like Jesus is saying, you guys want to come at me like a thief? You guys want to crucify me as a thief? Okay, then I'm going to come back like a thief. That's how that's going to go. And when he comes back the second time, it's going to be nothing like the first time. Let me ask you, are you ready for that day? My fear is that there could be people that are in this room this morning that aren't ready for that day, and it's going to overtake you as a thief in the night. Have you seen what Joel says about the day of the Lord in Joel chapter 3 and verse 14? says multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the lord is near in the valley of decision would you listen to that there may not be multitudes in the valley of decision this morning but there may be a few it says the day of the lord is near in the valley of decision what a name and I'm wondering if there aren't some people here that are in the valley of decision. Maybe you need to make the decision to acknowledge you're a sinner before God and put your faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross as payment for your sins and call on His name to be saved this morning. And maybe God has you here this morning so that you'll call on His name before that day comes like a thief in the night. Maybe some of you know the Lord already, but you find yourself not only with the day of the Lord not marked on your calendar, but it's not even on your radar. Listen, God keeps beating this drum of the day of the Lord all through the Bible in hopes that just maybe we'll get as excited about it as he is when he finally gets the glory that's due his name. Because when we do, it will reveal to us how we're to live in these last days. Father, God, I, I pray that you would just continue the work that you maybe started in some hearts and lives this morning, God. Boy, I'm praying that there's nobody in this room who's just sat here and listened to all this that will have the day of the Lord overtake them as a thief in the night, God. There is absolutely no reason why that should be the case god we we've we've seen it you've revealed it to us and if we've never in our lives gotten any of your light shined to us before today we did and what are we going to do with the light that we've received god i pray that you would minister to hearts you'd minister to souls you would save the lost and we love you in your name we pray amen